Hello, and welcome to the King of Kings podcast. Episode 2, Showdown in Babylon. When we last left off the narrative, less than 24 hours had passed since Alexander the Great's sudden and unexpected death, and violence had already begun to break out between his soldiers in Babylon over who should be the heir to the sprawling empire he had built over the past 12 years. On one side of this confrontation stood Perdiccas, one of Alexander's chief generals whom the dying king had passed his royal ring to the night before he had passed away. Perdiccas had taken the leadership role in managing, or at least attempting to manage, the council that convened the morning after Alexander's death. He had emerged as a stalwart supporter in naming Alexander's unborn child by his Bactrian mother, Roxanne, as the true heir to the empire. But Perdiccas' opponents were already claiming that he had eyes for the throne for himself, or at the very least that he was planning to seize power through a long regency. That opposition would rally around Meliager, a man who possessed perhaps the most combat experience of any of Alexander's generals, and who almost from the first accused Perdiccas of coveting the throne for himself. Meliager, along with a majority of the common soldiers who were present at Babylon, declared for Alexander's half-brother, Aridaeus, whom they crowned as King Philip III. This action was done in spite of Aridaeus's apparent mental disability. Yet while Alexander's half-brother may have lacked the intellectual capacity to rule by himself, he did have one important trait that Alexander's unborn child could never claim to have. He was of pure Macedonian blood. This latter point routinely pops up as a major issue across all of our ancient sources. The ancestral background of the candidates presented for the throne can't be downplayed if we wish to understand what exactly drove so much of Alexander's army to reject one of his own children as the true heir to his empire. The Roman historian Justin, one of our primary ancient sources for the immediate events after Alexander's death, perhaps puts it best when he writes that, quote, Roxanne was of Persian origin, and that it was unlawful that kings should be chosen for the Macedonians from the blood of those whose kingdoms they had overthrown. This not-so-subtle xenophobia against the Persians isn't really entirely surprising, though, when we try to examine things from the perspective of the average soldier in Alexander's army. Think about it for a minute. Many in the Macedonian entourage had spent years fighting grueling battles against the Persians. They weren't about to be ruled by one, even if he was Alexander's son. Now, in the modern era, we might be well aware of the stories about Persia's attempts to conquer Greece itself in the centuries leading up to Alexander's conquest. But in 323 BC, only 150 years had passed since the Persian king of kings Xerxes had crossed the Hellespont with his eyes towards subjugating the Greek city-states. And nearly every man in the Macedonian army had likely grown up with an animosity towards the Persians that we today would struggle to truly understand or appreciate. Fast forward from the death of King Leonidas at the now legendary Battle of Thermopylae to the death of King Alexander in the former capital city of the once mighty Persian Empire, and it becomes clear just how much the tables had turned in those past 150 years. The Persian conquerors had themselves become the conquered, and the eyes of the men in Alexander's army who had spent years fighting to defeat this mortal enemy, they had every reason in the world to jealously guard the spoils of war they had won on campaign. And no greater treasure existed 
than the throne of the very empire they had established over the past 12 years. In life, Alexander had attempted to unite the Persians and Greeks and present himself as the new successor to the Persian Empire. But in death, his conquests would now be used to justify retaining all political power in the hands of the Macedonians. As I brought up in my first episode, many in Alexander's army had grown weary of his attempts to integrate Persian customs, Persian culture, and Persian court life into his new empire. Nevertheless, Alexander had worked hard over the past few years to bring the Greeks and Persians closer together. But with his untimely death, that work would be left unfinished. There remained little appetite among the rank-and-file soldiers to bow before a half-Persian king, and that included any son of Alexander born from any Persian wife. Yet at the same time, Alexander's senior officers refused to betray his children. While our ancient sources routinely hint that Perdiccas was looking to advance himself in the chaos that followed Alexander's death, there are more nobler goals that we must attribute to him. And those who support his claim that Alexander's sons must inherit the empire at some degree must have intrinsically done so because they were Alexander's children. Personal loyalties towards Alexander remained high among those who had served in the closest capacities towards him. The officer corps of the Macedonian army was made up by men who fought alongside Alexander, some of whom had done so for over a decade. They had conquered most of the known world together, and they had earned his trust and confidence in the process. In Perdiccas's case, he'd even once saved Alexander's life while on campaign in India, carefully pulling an arrow out of the king's chest after he was shot in the lung during a siege against the Malaya people just two years before Alexander's death in Babylon. Stories such as this are important to remember, because while this podcast begins with the death of Alexander, history does not. Personal loyalty and friendships matter, and while they may be often overlooked when examining history through a superficial veneer, Alexander, as a charismatic man as anyone could ever be, left behind an impression among his most senior officers and generals that they could hardly leave less than a day after his death. For some of these officers, Rejecting Alexander's own children to succeed him would be one of the greatest betrayals imaginable. And to this end, Perdiccas was even joined by one of his own rivals, Ptolemy, in rejecting Meleager's attempts to pass over Alexander's children and instead seat his half-brother on the throne. The two famous generals were not alone either. Python, one of Alexander's seven bodyguards, joined Perdiccas's faction, and in the words of the Roman historian Quintus Curtius Rufus, Quote, an oath was extracted from each man that they would submit to a king begotten of Alexander. The battle lines were being drawn, both figuratively and literally in the royal palace of Babylon, although slightly cooler heads would end up prevailing. It seemed clear to all, as our sources repeatedly mention, that the raw numbers simply weren't on Perdiccas's side. Even with the senior officer corps backing him and the Persian royal guard at his command, the generals and senior officers who joined Perdiccas in declaring for Roxanne and Alexander's child were heavily outnumbered. After a handful of men were injured by all the javelins flying across the royal palace, some of Meliagor's men finally took off their helmets and stepped forward into the no-man's land that was growing between the two sides. They pointed out to Perdiccas that he was surrounded, and they asked him and his followers to peacefully lay down their arms before more innocent men were killed. And to his credit, Perdiccas himself would actually be the first man to surrender, 
with the rest of his supporters joining him soon after. Meleager had seemingly won the brief but intense power struggle, defeating his ambitious rival and bringing peace to the kingdom in just a matter of hours. But if Perdiccas' decision to not step forward and claim Alexander's throne when he had the chance was disastrous, then Meleager's decision to allow Perdiccas to live would prove to be fatal for the veteran general. Almost as quickly as he had laid down his sword and agreed to come to favorable terms with Meleager and his faction of the army, Perdiccas and his allies fled the royal palace through an unguarded back door. Escaping into the city of Babylon with the intention of linking up with reinforcements that Perdiccas knew he could rely on. Meleager had his chance to consolidate power in his own hands and secure the succession of Alexander's brother, and he completely blew it. According to Curtius, Perdiccas's party, made up largely of Alexander's fearsome companion cavalry, fled towards the Euphrates River. Some of Perdiccas's men then urged him to leave the city completely and muster an army out in the countryside that could then be used to retake Babylon by force. But Perdiccas refused, fearing that conflict would spark civil war across the entire empire if he failed to settle things there and now. As a result, an awkward standoff inside the city of Babylon ensued, with Perdiccas trying to win over the loyalty of the troops who originally sided against him, and Meleager encouraging the new King Aridaeus. Or should we call him Philip III now? Let's compromise and call him Philip Aridaeus. King Philip Aridaeus to crush Perdiccas by force before his support could grow to truly challenge his claim to the throne. Here, Meleager's Machiavellian streak showed itself, as he successfully argued for King Philip III to take out Perdiccas before he could end up sharing the same fate as his father, King Philip II. Unfortunately for Meleager, though, his new king was in no mood to inaugurate his reign with bloodshed, with Curtius describing that Philip Aridaeus, quote, listened to, rather than accepted, his advice. Politically defeated, Meleager then sent word to men loyal to the king to negotiate with Perdiccas, instructing his soldiers to kill the rogue general on spot if he hesitated to return to the palace in peace. When the party reached Perdiccas and demanded exactly that, he proceeded to dress them down, accusing them of being slaves to Meleager's bidding, and forsaking their loyalty towards Alexander and his line. Now, we don't have the exact quote from our ancient sources, but apparently this public scorning was so severe that the would-be assassins either outright forgot or were too fearful to try and actually make an attempt on the general's life. And so the day ended with absolutely no progress being made on the stalemate which continued in Babylon. In the following days, Perdiccas worked to grow his support among more key officers, allying himself with another one of Alexander's seven bodyguards, Leonatus, whose past friendship with Perdiccas proved to be decisive in winning him over to the cause. And on the other hand, Meleager's situation went from stressful to downright dire. Some of his men began to mutiny after taking stock of all the notable figures that were starting to join Perdiccas's camp. But to make matters even worse, Perdiccas' cavalry began to envelop Babylon, cutting off supplies of grain entering the city. A food shortage quickly set in, and the local Babylonians, caught in the middle of this standoff between two Macedonian generals, began to panic. A sort of grass-is-always-greener-on-the-other-side mentality apparently set in at this point, with Curtius writing that those inside the city of Babylon began to flee to the countryside in search of food, while those out in the fields poured into the city as refugees of Perdiccas' cavalry raids. 
The political chaos that had erupted in the immediate aftermath of Alexander's death had now begun to affect more than just the Macedonian generals and their troops. This mass migration severely disrupted the economy of Babylon and the surrounding areas, to the point that Philip Aridaeus again sent word to Perdiccas asking to negotiate. But Perdiccas's party replied that there would be no negotiations as long as the ringleader of Discord, aka Meliagor, remained in a position of power. At this point, the king lost it. He had never really wanted the crown to begin with, and he only accepted it after it was practically forced upon him. Announcing that his only true wish was to see Alexander's body back home so he could bury his brother, Philip Aridaeus decreed that he would sooner relinquish the power Meliagor had bestowed upon him rather than use it to kill his own subjects. And according to our sources, the king then took off his diadem, asked his soldiers to choose a better man if they could not come to terms with one another, and held it out for the taking. No one stepped forward to claim it. The entire speech, although quite possibly an apocryphal tale, cast doubt on just how mentally disabled Pharaoh Aridaeus truly was. Stories like this explain why some scholars believe the Macedonian was autistic rather than severely mentally handicapped. And with all the infighting between Perdiccas, Meliagor, and their supporters, our sources paint the supposedly weak-minded king as perhaps the only true adult in the room at the time. And in this moment, combined with his earlier attempts to prevent a conflict, it also helps to give us an idea of what kind of person Philip Aridaeus was truly like. While Alexander's generals plotted to murder each other, one can imagine him seeing there just begging for everyone to just get along. And... For his part, Curtius writes that many in the Macedonian army came to respect the king after listening to this speech, boosting the position of the man who had more or less spent his entire adult life living in Alexander's shadow. This would be very important for the moments that would come ahead. In the end, though, Aridaeus's passionate pleas for peace and reconciliation would lead to yet another attempted peace brokering between Meliagor and Perdiccas. Third time was the charm and both sides finally agreed to reconcile with one another in a great display of public camaraderie. So, that's it, right? Everyone marched merrily back into Babylon, and they all lived happily ever after. Well, not exactly. Remember, Perdiccas had already fled the royal palace once before because he feared for his own life, and his clash with Meliagor was so fierce that he felt the need to quite literally escape out the back door in order to save his own skin. And some of his allies had even tried to convince him to skip town altogether and rally an army capable of recapturing Babylon in force in the name of Alexander's unborn child. And so now Perdiccas would suddenly have no problem returning to the palace in peace? No. Curtius writes that by this point, the cavalry commander had resolved to crush Meliagor the moment he could do so, viewing his rival as far too disloyal and far too dangerous to keep alive. Unlike days earlier when he hesitated to take Alexander's ring after he announced the king's death to the army, there would be no more equivocation. So, when the two sides agreed to a compromise that would avert civil war, Perdiccas would use the opportunity to purge Meliagor and his men. The agreement that was struck was rather simple. Perdiccas wanted Alexander's unborn child to become king, while Meliagor wanted Philip Aridaeus to become king. So why not just make both men king? Both Philip III and Alexander IV, as he would soon be called once he was born, would come to rule the empire together, 
with Perdiccas and Meleager jointly governing the regency in Asia, while the generals Craterus and Antipater, the man who allegedly orchestrated Alexander's death, would rule in Europe. The details of the power-sharing agreement would be hashed out by Eumenes, the Greek personal secretary of Alexander and his father Philip before him. Eumenes had little combat experience, but he was considered an able diplomat and administrator, and his status as a Greek native limited his potential to rise up the Macedonian-dominated hierarchy. So, as a supposedly neutral outsider, he was able to position himself as the peace broker that both parties could trust. And truth be told, Eumenes probably was genuinely interested in working out a deal to avert war. But it's also true that he would use his newfound usefulness to grow his own power as well, as we'll soon see. Rest assured, we will come to cover Eumenes in far greater detail down the line. With the terms now drawn up, Perdiccas and Meleager finally met in person to solidify the agreement, and both resolved to remove any divisive or treasonous elements within the Macedonian army who would reject the compromise. Chief among the malcontents were those protesting against Meleager's elevation to the status of co-regent alongside Perdiccas. So when Meleager brought the issue before Perdiccas, the senior general offered a solution. The two forces that had come to blows over the past few days were slated to reconcile with one another in the traditional Macedonian fashion, which, I kid you not, involved intermingling in a field separated by the intestines of a sacrificed dog. Perdiccas suggested to Meleager that they would use this ceremony as an opportunity to arrest Meleager's opponents in the open field, where Perdiccas's cavalry would have the upper hand in combat. Meleager agreed to this, without knowing that it was a trap. Perdiccas himself was the one orchestrating the division within the army. The protesters against Meleager were Perdiccas's operatives. In the proposal that was drawn up to list enemies of Meleager and arrest them at the reconciliation ceremony, Perdiccas instead presented Philip Aridaeus, the very king Meleager and his men had lifted up in opposition to his plans, with a list of Meleager's allies who were slated for summary execution instead. Perdiccas's plan worked perfectly. When the two forces met in the fields outside Babylon, Philip Aridaeus rode forward with a company of men in a pre-written speech demanding the insurrectionists be handed over, just as Meleager was expecting. But his joy would turn to despair as the names began to be read out loud. Some thirty to as many as 300 of Meleager's key allies were arrested on the spot. These men were then allegedly thrown before the army's elephants and trampled to death right before Meleager's eyes. If the 300 number that Curtius gives is to be believed, then more Macedonians died on that June day in the fields outside Babylon than at any point since Alexander's army had begun to march west from India two years before. Meleager had lost the Macedonian Game of Thrones. Knowing that Perdiccas had used the very man he had lifted up as king to purge the army of his key allies and supporters, the general saw the writing on the wall and fled to a nearby temple in Babylon, seeking sanctuary. But the gods would give him no mercy. Meleager was soon murdered there on Perdiccas's orders. Perdiccas's coup was as politically game-changing as it was ruthless. Either wittingly or unwittingly, he had just established a precedent that brute force and violence was an acceptable way to settle the question over who would rule Alexander's empire. 
Violence was nothing new in the ancient world, of course. But the Macedonians had spent well over a decade fighting first against the Persians and later against the Indians. Now, they would be fighting each other. It is at this moment that Curtius writes that the wars of the Diadochi began. And while we may doubt his claims of death by elephant and 300 Macedonians being slain in the fields outside Babylon, it's hard not to agree with him on this latter point. Alexander the Great had died less than a week ago, and already one of his generals lay dead at the hands of another. Meliagor would be the first, but certainly not the last, to perish in the wars of Alexander's successors. But there would be no time to contemplate what sort of Pandora's box Perdiccas had just opened. It was time to divide the responsibilities of managing an empire. All of Alexander's key generals, except for three, were present at the meeting which followed, and the council that would later be known to us as the Partition of Babylon soon commenced. For the first and most obvious order of business, Perdiccas would cash in on Alexander's ring for all of its symbolic worth, and assume command as regent of the empire. Aridaeus, who had done exactly as Perdiccas had asked, would retain his title as King Philip III, and it was declared that Alexander's unborn child by Roxanne would reign alongside him. The rest of the negotiations were much more chaotic, though. With Alexander's death so unexpected, there were few plans already on the table, and so men began to jockey with one another for the richest pieces of Alexander's empire to govern for themselves. But it should be noted here that at no point was the partition of Babylon a division of the empire in the traditional sense. There was still to be one united empire, albeit with two kings, and as far as we know, nobody who gathered at this council in Babylon in June of 323 BC had any plans to establish independent kingdoms at this point in time. And yet, that's exactly what would end up happening down the road. With Alexander now dead, his realm would begin to grow more and more decentralized over time. And as a result, the partition of Babylon serves as the first of many milestones towards the eventual fragmentation and final division of the Macedonian Empire. But now for the big question. Who received what? With Perdiccas firmly in the driver's seat, he got to hand out key appointments to his friends and allies who had supported him in his struggle against Meliagor. The latter was now out of the picture, but he was just the loudest of all the men in the room who objected to Perdiccas's claim as the true regent to the empire. The rest of Alexander's generals and officers needed to be placated as well. But if Perdiccas was to remain in power as the de facto head of the empire, their ambitions would need to be checked. With the downfall of Meliagor out of the way, it's time for us to take our first tour of the empire. So join us next time as we take a look at what provinces in the Macedonian Empire were parceled out and who was assigned to govern what, traveling, much like Alexander did, from west to east.